So we're on page uh, 1188, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're starting at the first verse. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day would surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, with the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together for him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. David, thank you. Uh, Good evening, everyone. Um, As uh, John said, we're going to spend the next 25 minutes or so looking at these uh, verses in 1 Thessalonians. I'd love it if you could keep those open in front of you. Um, We're coming to the end of this letter, um, the book of 1 Thessalonians written by the Apostle Paul, Um, to a church that he established around 50 AD. Um, It's a a port city um, in Greece. And um, huge encouragements uh, from the church, but also some things that Paul felt the need to to address, some issues, some confusions. And we'll look at some of those uh, this evening. But before we get there, here is a quiz question uh, for you. Can anyone tell me what uh, is significant about this date, please? Okay, let's try it in a different uh, slide. What is significant about this date? Someone, anyone? Back to the Future Day. Correct, Back to the Future Day. Yeah, and see, it's, it, it's come to my attention over the course of my time here that a disconcertingly large number of people have not seen the Back to the Future films. Um, so that's the first application from tonight. Um, if you want to borrow them uh, off me. Um, you're very welcome to. Ah, cracking films. Um, uh, if you don't know the films at all, the first one, our hero, Martin McFly, he travels back in time 30 years from 1985 to 1955. And then in the second film, he travels forward from 1985 to that date in the heady futuristic time of 2015, or 2015, uh, as it's become known. Uh, a time, as we all know, of uh, flying cars, and hoverboards and clothes that when you put them on, they kind of shrink um, to fit you perfectly, uh, 2015. And the reason he does that is because he discovers um, that his future son is going to get into trouble. And so he travels forwards to try and prevent it happening. And as he does so, he discovers that 
His life isn't quite what he expected to be. He's married to his childhood sweethearts, but they have some issues as well. So here's the link to our passage tonight, just in case you're wondering. If you knew for sure uh, what your life was going to be like in 30 years' time, how would it affect your life today? And obviously, we, we don't have uh, time-traveling cars yet, um, but it would make a difference, wouldn't it, to how we lived our lives now, if we knew what was going to happen in our futures. So I guess if you knew that you were going to be at the top of your profession, uh, it might motivate you to work uh, harder uh, when times are tough, because you knew you were going to get there in the end. Or if you knew that you were going to be uh, living in amongst a currently undiscovered tribe in the Amazon, um, well, you might consider some of the steps that you'd need to, to take to, to get there, perhaps learn a language or something like that. Or I guess more negatively, if you knew that some of your loved ones wouldn't be around anymore, then I guess you would cherish the times that you had left with them that bit more, wouldn't you? You'd make the most of the opportunities. Knowing the future gives you or would give you a different lens to see the world through. And in our passage today, that's what we get. That's what Paul gives us, because he tells us of a day in the future that is to come, that is certain, and that will affect every single one of us, everyone who's ever lived, everyone who ever will live. And it's the day that the Lord Jesus returns to earth. And Paul implores us to live our lives now in the light of that day to come. So let's dive into the passage together and think about that. And if it's a help to you, we're going to look at it under three headings, uh, which will be up there. Uh, we've got one certain day to come, two states of awareness, and then three ways to be prepared. And we'll think um, primarily about some applications um, in that final point. So firstly, um, one certain day to come. It's often joked, isn't it, that there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. Um, But I think Paul would add a third thing to that list. He would say that the Lord Jesus is going to return. And you see that in verse 1, don't you, of our passage this evening. Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So the question of whether Jesus would return or not is actually not a consideration to Paul at all. He knows that it is not in any doubt. So right through the Old Testament, we can read of a day where the world, as we know, will come to an end. A day of judgment, a day of renewal, the day of the Lord that Paul speaks of in these verses. And similarly, Jesus told his disciples the same thing, that after ascending back to the Father, he would come again to usher in that day. He was the one who would bring in that day of the Lord. So that isn't the issue that Paul is addressing here. But whether Thessalonians were mistaken um, was in their understanding of when that day was to come, or more specifically, that they could even know when Jesus would return at all. So it's likely there were probably a couple of errors going around in the church at the time. Um, one was that the Lord Jesus had already returned. So if you just flick over the page to 2 Thessalonians, um, you read there in chapter 2, Paul writes, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, 
not to be, become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. So it seemed like there were some, some people, perhaps even people claiming to come in the authority of Paul, who were saying that Jesus had already come back. Um, but Paul says, no, that isn't the case. Um, Jesus had not yet returned. And the second error that they might have made was that they were expecting Jesus to come back at any moment at all, in the same way that you might expect a phone call from a doctor after you'd had some blood tests or um, you'd hear from a, an employer if you'd had a job interview, you'd be expecting that call to come quickly. And so the Thessalonians wanted to know from Paul exactly when Jesus would come back. You can see that. He's been, they've been asking about times and dates. I don't think this is kind of idle curiosity in the same way that we might kind of find it interesting to know when the next lunar eclipse is or when the next Snow Patrol album is coming out, May 25th, if you're interested. Um, that isn't what, why they're asking. They're asking because they want to know so they can be ready for it. And you can understand that, can't you? If you know your parents are going to come and visit, so you want to know exactly when they're going to come so you can tie to the house and get the spare room ready and get some vegetables and things like that. <laughs> And actually, Jesus had been asked the same question by his disciples. So in Mark um, chapter 13, uh, his disciples ask him the same question. And Jesus gives them the same answer that Paul gives them here. He says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Not even Jesus knows when he's going to return. Only the Father knows when that day will come. People still today and throughout history have wanted to know that question, haven't they? So you might be familiar with the the Mayan calendar of the 5th century BC, which led to some people thinking that the world was going to end at the end of 2012. And people still say these things today. They predict when the world is going to end. And then the dates come, and they go, and it hasn't ended. Paul says you don't need to know when Jesus will return. You can't know when Jesus will return. But instead, he tells them two things about Jesus' return to help them. And he gives them a couple of images to do that. So the first you see there in verse 2, just look down with me. He says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I'm not sure if you've ever had your house broken into. Um, I have once. Um, and actually, it happened in the daytime, um, uh, which statistically is more common um, these days. But at the time, people were much more likely to break into a house at night. Um, and the point is, it's when people are least expecting it. Um, that happened in the day to me because they'd cased the joint and they knew that when one was going to be in. And at night, typically, people are going to be asleep. The house is much less protected. So the point is that a thief, he doesn't tell you when they're going to come, do they? It's a surprise. They didn't give you a postcard to give you advance warning. Because if, you, if they did, you would know, and you would do things to stop it happening. So Paul says that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night, at a time when no one is expecting him. And then the second image he gives us is that of a woman in labor. So you see that there in verse 3. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape Again, labor begins at a time when you can't predict. Um, 
we have two children. My, my wife, Sarah, she went into labor um, with our son, Tom, at four in the morning uh, on a Saturday um, after we'd been out for a curry the night before, which um, actually apparently does help um, labor to come on. Um, but we didn't know. We didn't know that Tom was going to arrive that weekend. But there is a difference here, of course, with labor from a thief coming. Um, it was a surprise when Tom came, but we were expecting it. We were expecting, at some point, a baby to arrive. So that's the kind of additional point that Paul is making here. The day of the Lord will be unexpected, but it's also unavoidable. It will happen as surely as, you know, all being well, a baby will arrive at the end of a pregnancy. So that is what Paul wants the Thessalonians, that's what Paul wants us to know about Jesus' return that we can't possibly know when it will happen, but we can know that it most certainly will happen. It will be unexpected, but unavoidable. So given that fact that Paul lays out for us, how might people respond? I guess that's an obvious question that you might ask. And so Paul begins to answer that question by giving us two contrasting perspectives to that day. Firstly, those who do know the truth of what Paul is saying. And secondly, he contrasts them with those who don't. So that's our second heading. Two states of awareness. So in these middle verses, Paul uses a different selection of metaphors um, to draw out the contrast he sees. And all these images are still in relation to that thief idea. You see that in verse 4 again. He reiterates it. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. So first of all, think about uh, those who do not live in the reality of Jesus' return. You'll see there in verses 4 to 7, if you just skim over them, that he describes them like this. He describes people who are unaware of that reality as being in darkness or in the night, as being drunk, and as being asleep. That's how he describes them. So I guess if you wanted to be ready for a burglar to break into your house, these are probably three things that you would want to avoid, aren't they? They're not complicated images in some ways. The advantage of of darkness, the advantage of night, is that it's harder to see a thief coming, isn't it? A thief is more likely to come at night because he's less likely to be seen. I guess that's why people have, you know, motion-activated sensors and lights outside their house. Or when they go on holiday, people have lights on the timers to try and um, give the impression that people are in and that it's not safe to break in. And similarly, at night, a person's more likely to be asleep and therefore wouldn't be aware if someone's downstairs breaking into your sitting room. And the other thing that people are more likely to do at night is drink alcohol and potentially get drunk. I guess some of you might know that it was St. Patrick's Day yesterday, wasn't it? A day originally commemorating a a 5th century saint who brought Christianity to Ireland and now marked as a kind of excuse for drunkenness and public debauchery. It's the kind of Homer Simpson approach to life, isn't it? The cause, alcohol, the cause and solution to all of life's problems. That's how a lot of people think, isn't it? That is the kind of Homer Simpson approach to life. But of course, what alcohol does is that it makes you totally unprepared for anything that might come your way. Your mind is clouded, 
your body is unstable, and your actions are out of control. Now, I know that having The Simpsons is probably making this a little bit more lighthearted than it should be. I think that this passage isn't specifically addressing the issue of drunkenness, though I think that the Bible has lots to say about that. I think it's clear that it's not something uh, that is of God. But um, this imagery is pointing us to something that actually is really serious. It's a deep spiritual reality. The world around us are unprepared for the day of judgment to come. This is how they think of Jesus' return. This is how ready they are. Either they don't know it, or they do know it, and just choose to ignore it. As Paul is talking here about people who don't know and love God. That's the stark reality of these verses. So back in verse 3 again. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them. I'm sure most of us can think of work colleagues, or friends, or family members who think exactly like that. Peace and safety. We might put it another way, just eat and drink and be merry. This life is all there is. There's nothing to worry about. Just do whatever you like. Your world ends at death, and that is it. There's no more. Perhaps some of us here tonight who are Christians, maybe we doubt the reality of Jesus' return. Will Jesus, will he really come back? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. Will he really come back? Will he come back as judge? Paul says there is a day to come, a day of destruction and wrath. It's a reality that he wants people to be aware of. But to believers, to people who believe that is true, He says, brothers and sisters, you are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. This is how Paul describes those who do believe that. He describes them as in the light of the day, as sober and awake. Let me read again from verse 5. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. I wonder if you've ever had that experience of going on holiday uh, somewhere uh, for the first time, and you arrive at night, and uh, you go to your hotel room, and you you look out the window, and everything is, is unfamiliar. You've got some slightly foreboding, huge shapes in the distance, uh, there are some strange noises going on. It's cold, and you fall slightly fitfully asleep. And then in the morning, you wake up, and you open the curtains, and the light floods in. And suddenly, those ominous shapes that you saw last night are those glorious hills rolling down to the lake with the water lapping against it invitingly. Depends where you are, of course. Um, but I wonder if you've had that experience. See, light brings truth to light. Light, light, light brings the truth to life, doesn't it? It brings security. It reveals goodness and beauty. It's a very different experience, isn't it, walking across Midsummer Common in the day than it is at night. 
you see beauty, you see goodness, you feel safer. And so with our passage, if a thief were to come in the day, well, you'd see them, wouldn't you? You'd see them. And you'd be awake, and it would be light. And similarly, in the daytime, we'd be far more likely to be sober, you'd hope. Some other translations, interestingly, there have the words self-controlled rather than sober. But it's the same sense, isn't it? It's that sense of being alert and focused. This isn't the kind of leery-eyed kind of half-sleep that you might have when you first wake up or or all the time for some of us. Um, This is kind of how you might feel after that first morning cup of coffee or after you've been for that beautiful run on the beachfront. That kind of feeling that you can face whatever the day holds with clarity and readiness. That's the sense that we have here. But of course, Paul again is pointing us to that deeper spiritual reality. As you probably know, light in the Bible is one of the most frequent images used to show truth, to show God's truth, and to show the security and joy of knowing God. See, ever since God first said, let there be light, back in Genesis 1, he's been seeking to overcome the darkness with his glorious light. Famous words at the start of Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those walking in the shadow of darkness, a light has dawned. Since that day, people have been waiting for someone who would overcome the light, to lift them out of that spiritual darkness caused by our sin and rebellion against God. And they were waiting until Jesus said these words, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, those who live in the light, who live in the day, are those who follow Jesus. That's who Paul is talking about. Those who know him and are loved by him. So if that's you tonight, you have become a child of the day, a child of the night, as these verses say, because you can clearly see the truth of Jesus' return. And you know that he will come as judge, but he will also be our refuge when he comes. So then, if we are children of light, if that's us tonight, then how should we live as we wait? Because Jesus has brought us into that light, but we know that the darkness still lingers, doesn't it? So fundamentally, the way to prepare for that day to come is to make sure we are in the light, make sure we are living for him. But faith is never passive, it's always active. So Paul gives us some implications for what it might mean for living for that day. So here are three ways as we finish to be prepared for that day. Firstly, have confidence in Christ. Have confidence in Christ. Let me read verses 8 to 10 again. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. This isn't the only time that Paul has used the imagery of armor to describe the Christian life. He does that in Ephesians and elsewhere, and it fits with the idea of being ready, doesn't it? 
I don't think particularly in these verses it's necessary to worry too much about why he uses breastplate or, or helmet, um, though they do cover the heart and the mind. But what it is worth dwelling on is, is that combination of faith and love and hope. Did you notice that as we were reading those verses? They're kind of known as the trinity of Christian living, faith, hope, and love. So how do they help us be prepared for the day Jesus returns? Well, they're active, aren't they? They're all outward-looking, and they help us to focus on Jesus, past, present, and future. If you think about faith, well, faith means we're holding on to the promises of God, looking back to the cross as our anchor point. That's faith, isn't it? We're looking back, trusting in Christ. And the love is is what we're to do in the present. We're to love God now. We're to love others now. It's a response to what God has done for us. And hope is that future perspective. Hope is being sure of these verses. That Jesus will bring us to himself. We will receive salvation through him. They're glorious verses, aren't they? I think the asleep and the awake there, just as an aside in verse 10, it's not talking about uh, what he was talking about earlier. I think he's talking there about those who have died in Christ and those who are still alive in Christ. But you, do you see that being ready for that day is entirely by trusting in what God has done for us. It isn't about us. It's being confident that through Jesus we will receive salvation through him. And more than that, live with him. See, our salvation is secure, not because of anything we've done. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin keeps us in the darkness. But because of his love, because of the cross, we are forgiven. And his resurrection guarantees that we will be with him for all eternity. That's what we were thinking about last week at the end of chapter 4. So belonging to the day means being confident of those truths. So, friends, are we, are we confident of those truths? Is our faith steadfast day by day? I know that I, for one, find it easy to be pulled back to the darkness, have our confidence clouded as the day goes, days go up and down, and our sin can condemn us, can't it? But Paul says, be confident. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ and the day to come. I remember being on a flight once. I can't remember exactly where we were going, um, but for, a, for what felt like a very long time, it seemed to be sunrise outside the window. It felt like we were just tracking along with the sunrise for hours until eventually we landed and the dawn broke. That's a bit like how we're living now. As we wait for that final day, it's a bit like we're just waiting for the dawn to break. We have the light, but we're just waiting for the day to come. So keep our eyes on the gospel. Be confident of that day to come. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to warn those in darkness, to warn those in darkness. See, for all the security and joy that we can know now as those who know Christ. The reality is, isn't it, that most of the world is still in darkness. They're drunkenly sleepwalking their way to judgment. So do do we see the urgency in these verses to go and share the good news with our friends and family? Perhaps you're here tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Well, what do you make of these verses? If these verses are true, then surely they need thinking about. I'd love to chat to you afterwards. Or let me 
let me put a course in front of you or something that you might come to to think further about this. But for those of us who are believers, how are we doing with this? How are we doing with sharing the gospel? You might have heard a famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of the the 19th century. He said to his congregation um, towards the end of his life that after he died, he knew that he would have a great public funeral where his coffin would be paraded through the streets of London and huge, huge crowds would gather, which is exactly what happens. And he said this to his congregation, When you see my coffin carried to the silent grave, I should like every one of you, whether converted or not, to be constrained to say, he did earnestly urge us, in plain and simple language, not to put off the consideration of eternal things. He did entreat us to look on Christ. Now he is gone, our blood is not at his door, if we perish. Do we have that same attitude? Do we have that same ambition for our life, for our loved ones? Do we have that same desire that we, we can confidently say we've done all that we can to warn people of this day to come? I know I've been challenged by that this week. So warn those in darkness. And then finally, encourage one another. Encourage one another. And you see that in verse 11, don't you? Let me just read it again quickly. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. See, Paul knows that we need each other to keep going in anticipation of Jesus' return. So we have to believe the Gospels ourselves. There's no disputing that. But we need a community of believers like this to spur one another on when we feel weary or hard-pressed by troubles of this world, whether we're caught in sin and need rebuking, whether we're discouraged when we need comforting, when we're grieving. We need each other, don't we, to keep living for this day. We had a picture earlier, didn't we, of Homer Simpson as someone who lives uh, in the darkness. I've got some pictures of people living in the light. There's one. And here's another one. I've got one more as well. There's no physical armor there, is there? But these are people who gather Sunday by Sunday or in a midweek small group or at a big church picnic, which most definitely was off the day. It was about 35 degrees. One of the reasons we do that is to encourage one another to keep going, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. When we gather to pray in those prayer meetings, we do so in part to remind ourselves of our utter dependence on God in everything, don't we? And the need for him to act, to overcome the light, overcome the darkness with his glorious light. And when we go away together, like 60 of us blokes are going to be doing next weekend on a men's weekend away, we do so in part to encourage each other, don't we? That's the whole theme of the weekend, in fact, encouragement. We need friendship. We need accountability. I know myself, I'm rubbish on my own. I can't do this. I'm prone to wander from God. I'm easily discouraged. I'm timid in sharing the gospel. I need others to spur me on. And I think you do too. We need one another to encourage each other to keep living for that day. So we started, didn't we, by thinking about what 
our lives would look like now, if we knew for certain what our lives would look like in 30 years' time. So how then will we will be affected by the certainty of knowing that one day Jesus will return? There's a Bible teacher called uh, Pablo Martinez who just put it like this. For the Christian, there are really only two days that matter. This day and that day. Only two days that matter. This day, that is today, and that day. So are we making decisions each day that will help us ensure we are ready for Jesus' return, either before we die or afterwards? Are we using our time wisely each day, making the most of opportunities to grow in our faith or share the good news with others? And it's got to drive those big decisions as well, doesn't it? Where we live, who we might marry, how we bring up our children, whether to take that job or not. We've got to be asking ourselves, is this decision going to help me to be prepared to meet Jesus on that day? Or is it going to be something that makes me drift towards the darkness? So will we live this day as if Jesus will return tomorrow? Because he might, mightn't he? Why don't I pray as we close? Father God, we thank you for the encouragement and the challenge in these verses. We thank you for the certainty that we can have that the Lord Jesus will return as judge and that by putting our faith in him, he also can be our refuge from that wrath that we deserve. Lord, please would you help us in the days, weeks, months and years ahead to live each day in anticipation of the Lord Jesus' return. Help us to be confident in our salvation. Help us to warn others of his return. And help us to keep encouraging one another to live for that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a final song shortly, but before we do that, um, I'm going to invite the musicians. Uh,